update on our second lesson. It's recorded in Paul's first letter to Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. We've read these words already. We pray. Dear Lord, open up our hearts and our minds to understand your word. Help us to let our reason be captive to the word of God where things appear to us as though they were impossible to understand or reason. And yet you speak to us through your powerful word, through faith. You open our eyes and our minds. Help us to live according to your word as we glorify you. Amen. Mm -hmm. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. I don't know if anybody here watches the Oscars. They were on a couple weeks ago. But until the Oscars this year, I had not heard of this movie. The Theory of Everything. Has anybody here heard of this movie before? Well, it was the first time that I heard about it when I watched the Oscars. And it was nominated for several awards and actually won the best actors for the portrayal of a man named Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is still alive today. He is considered one of the most brilliant minds of our time. He's an astronomer, uh, an astronomer, a theoretical physicist, a cosmologist, basically meaning he tries to speculate and understand where life came from and where we're headed to and where the origins of the universe are, what they are. The movie tagline, if you're interested in this, said this, His mind changed our world, her love changed his. It's kind of catchy, it's kind of intriguing. It was referring to his first wife, Jane Wilde, who loved him and helped to shape his world. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I have a hunch that this very brilliant mind has a theory. For everything. He probably has a theory to answer all kinds of questions about the origins of the universe and life, about human struggle and our human potential, maybe why we're here and where we are going. But like so many others, this individual simply has theories. Theories about everything. Perhaps the most important question that we human beings need an answer to is this one. What happens to me when I die? I think we could argue that that is perhaps the most important question. And for that question, we need a real answer, not just a theory or opinions from some really smart people. Because when I lay me down to sleep, when I'm in those quiet moments by myself, pondering who I am, why I'm here, and what's going to happen to me someday. It's not an opinion. It's not a theory. It gives peace or puts our life into perspective. We need to understand what's going to happen for sure. And not just a hunch that maybe, just maybe, there's something more after all of this. We need the truth. We need an answer to everything based on indisputable evidence. 
that our life and our eternity are secure. That indisputable evidence is a wooden cross. How, pray tell, is a wooden cross proof for anything except the fact that the Romans had a sadistic genius for torture and execution. From a historical standpoint and a scientific standpoint even, this simple wooden cross provided one of the most awful, excruciating, fearsome forms of death. And if you want to make a statement to ensure that would-be criminals will think long and hard before committing that act, this is how you do it. If you want to make a statement about power and control, that if you cross us, this is what you're going to get. This is how you do it. A wooden cross. Jesus, of course, knew about wooden crosses. He knew about what happens to criminals, and he even knew for himself what was going to happen with this cross. He knew it that Monday when he walked into Jerusalem, several days before he would be hanging on that cross. On that Monday, Jesus walks into the temple court before the Passover, and he grabs a makeshift whip to drive the moneymakers out. Many have had their eye on Jesus and probably were anticipating this to happen. Jesus did miraculous signs. Jewish people, as the Apostle Paul says in our lesson here, in our text, this is what they demand. They demand miraculous signs. This is what they look for, for proof that Jesus or anybody else has authority to say and do things that he was saying and doing. Paul says, these people demand miraculous signs. They don't just take Jesus for his word. And that's understandable. These people also know that Jesus is likely to pull a stunt like this during Holy Week. With all of these people from out of town, all of these worshipers coming to Jerusalem, he'll have an audience to make a statement. But now they realize, they say, we're going to make a statement of our own if he tries this. And when given that opportunity, they will shout, crucify him. They do not shout, let's put him in a chariot. Let's give him a crown and a scepter. Because they don't see power or victory for Jesus. They see a wooden cross for him. They don't shout, let's honor our Savior with worship and praise. Because they don't see the peace that Jesus gives or the freedom from the law that he brings. They see a wooden cross for Jesus. They see political unrest and captivity for themselves. To say that a cross, or the one who's hanging on that cross, brings anything like power, or victory, or peace, or freedom, that just sounds like foolishness. And the Romans, they would agree with that. Jesus looks like a victim, lying helpless in his own pool of blood, drawn from that savage scourging, or hanging from that cross, pierced and gasping for breath. They don't see power or wisdom. They see someone 
who was too foolish and too weak to keep his mouth shut. And so, he's on a cross now. It doesn't take a Greek philosopher to explain the logic in that. Paul writes, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Literally, Paul says that the gospel of a crucified Savior is a scandalous trap. It trips people up. It offends our logic and our sensibilities. I mean, have you ever thought about this, the gospel message, and what it really is saying? I think for most of us, we, we've heard it so many times, we've believed it for so long, that it's just there. We understand, we believe it. But basically it's saying that the most powerful being in the universe saves a fallen, self-destructed world of rebels by dying for them. God actually dies for people that he knows don't deserve it. And not just any old death either, but one of the most painful, shameful, heinous forms of death ever devised. By today's standards, that message of the cross offends basic human rights. It offends human logic and reason. It offends our human pride. And how can something so offensive save anyone? What was God thinking when he came up with this plan? And during Lent, we take a long, hard look at the cross and the Lord of glory who is willing to give his own life, to be shamed, abused, and put up on the cross. And we wonder, couldn't there have been some other way? Couldn't God have just started over from scratch? Why would God ever create people who he knew would fail so miserably, knowing that we would grieve his heart this way, knowing that our sins would cost the life of his own son? Why would God do this? I don't know if I have an answer for you, other than the fact that he loves us. And at some point along the way, from in this cross, in this way to the cross, from Eden, Eden, all the way in the Garden of Eden to Calvary, we have to admit this really wouldn't make sense to most people or to anyone. This couldn't be true. This should not have saved anyone. And yet God says that He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. It might not make sense to our tiny human brains. But you and I believe that if God says so, it must be true. He has saved the whole world. Even me. Even you. I know my own sins and how ugly and disgusting they are. You know yours. And during this season of Lent, that's when we come face to face with this. We see how ugly our failures and our weaknesses are how disgusting some of these sins are from recent times. Maybe there are ones from a long time ago that still haunt us. And even though we know that Jesus has paid for all of our sins, our sinful nature has a way of holding on to that guilt 
and not letting go. And the devil, he's even worse. He takes that guilt, he takes those memories and those sins from before, and he shoves them in your face and says, See, this is you. This is what you have done. How could God possibly love you or forgive you? If you think so, then you're dumber than you look. If that's what it means for me to believe in the cross and what Jesus has done, call me what you will. Yes, the cross was an ingenious instrument of torture. A symbol of shame and death, for sure. A completely counterintuitive plan to give life and salvation to a world of sinners, most definitely. Paul says it this way, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You may not be Jewish or Greek, but you can tell, you're included in Paul's words here. Those whom God has called. You know how you are called? You know how you can know that you are called? If you can say, Jesus is my Lord who has paid for my sins, God has called you. He's invited you. Through that message of the cross, the Spirit has opened your eyes to see His power. He's opened your heart to believe His love. He has opened your mouth to profess and confess this truth. And through faith, you'll see these past, and you'll see all past this, the shame and death of the cross, and you'll see the life and the glory that are truly yours. This is for you personally. God has loved you and forgiven you. Whatever your race or ancestry, whatever your language, culture, or customs, wherever you come from, whatever differences or deficiencies may divide you, Christ, Paul says. Christ is the answer to all of these differences that may divide us, all the deficiencies that may weaken us, to all the guilt that may weigh you down. Christ, the power and the wisdom of God, to overcome all of this, to do it perfectly. To those who believe, a crucified Christ is the perfect solution. Through faith, it makes perfect sense. And I realize that just because we're Christians doesn't mean we always make sense, or that we always think, say, or do the right things. Sometimes we say some pretty foolish and silly things. But, in talking with most of you, I'm fairly confident that you have a functional level of sanity. In other words, I don't think you're crazy, especially for, not, for believing in Jesus and what his cross means to you. Perhaps to neighbors who watch you drive out of your neighborhood on a Sunday morning to come to church, you're off your rocker. Perhaps to certain friends and family members who know that you give offerings to support ministry, gospel ministry, they think that you're throwing your money down the drain. To those who see how calmly and how peaceful you are, even in the face of 
some of these life-changing hardships that you endure. Maybe you're catatonic or oblivious to the world around you. So what are you thinking? What are you missing? Don't you see these problems all around you? Yes, we do see them. We think about them. We feel them. We even suffer as a result of them. No amount of pretending that these problems don't exist will solve them. No imaginary fairy tales or wishful thinking will make that disappear. Nothing will change the reality of our suffering or its cause. The cause is sin. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin, filled with guilt, pain, and death. We see it all around us. But we also see the solution. It is God's wise answer to sin. You know what that solution is, don't you? It's the cross. It's God's Son pierced, bleeding, and giving up His life. This is God's wise answer to all of our doubt, our fear, and our guilt. How do I know He loves and forgives me? What will happen when you die? How do you know you'll be in heaven? See the cross. See God's wisdom. And believe His promise. I think we have a theory for everything, too. Our sin changed our world. God's love changed ours. This isn't just a theory, either. It's not blind faith. Not like those who trust in human reason or speculation. This message of the cross is true wisdom. And that promise of salvation is yours through faith in the rock-solid, death-defying, sin-stopping truth of the cross. You and I can rejoice to know that it is finished. You can live with this confidence that Jesus has won the battle, has won the war. And so have you. That's God's wisdom. That's the cross. And it is powerful wise. Amen. Please stand.